0: I'm not gonna write you. Up. I'm not gonna give you a citation here, but the real problem we have here is that you got people around you, people who work from home, you know, trying to get some work done. And if you're listening to your music that loud, they're inconvenienced by that. And I, you know, now if you had a job, you probably understand. But you like listening to your music. That, that's fine. That's fine. Um. You're just gonna to want to keep an eye on the volume level. You know, maybe, maybe memorize what what number you see on the dial. If it's the middle of the day, that's what I do. I just set it at two and a half, and then I know that's a good listening level for me. But uh, you like to listening to your music loud, <laughs> and that's fine. That's cool. It's good to rock out sometimes. But you can't do it every day, you know, or, or else you risk damaging your ears. Seriously.
1: This is Film Welcome to the show. So I'm C.R. Gonzalez once again, and I'm here with Patrick. He's back. Hey, Patrick. Hey, how's it going? Great, man. Uh, Today we're talking about the Paul Thomas Anderson film from 1999, Magnolia, the three-hour epic. And I know, Patrick, that you have not seen this movie as much as I have.
2: No, I... uh I saw it at uh, Best Friend of the Show's Juan Rubalcava's house uh, a few years ago.
1: Yeah, he loves this movie. Yeah,
2: he made me watch
1: it. <laughs> I think he does that to everyone. I'm sure there was pizza involved too. Mm-hmm. What were your thoughts?
2: You know, honestly, a fir- uh, few years ago when I first saw it, I did not think much of it. Yeah, I I didn't know, honestly, that it was uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. Uh-huh. Um, this guy, you know, like I didn't know it was the same director as there will be blood the master.
1: Yeah. Are those movies you're more familiar with?
2: Yeah. I'm more familiar with those and it blows my mind that it's the same director actually. Yeah. And, uh, you know, doing a little bit of my homework for this seeing Mm -hmm. that it, you know, punch struck love and boogie nights. And, um, I haven't seen phantom thread or inherent vice, Mm. but, uh, yeah, yeah, now I want to go back and see those. But, uh, yeah, I had uh, a lot more fun, with uh, magnolia this time um in in doing my homework for this because there's so much uh there's so much here you know there, there's yeah. a lot to there's a lot to analyze i think there's, upon there's
1: pursuing the there's like a lot of things that might not seem fun about this film yeah but yeah um, one of the greatest living directors i think um i mean i think pta has because that's what they call them PTA. pta so i think pta has a big uh, uh place in the hearts of like american filmgoers you know this definitely this movie especially it it, it it like sparked something in me that like made me understand that movies were something bigger, something very complex, something very powerful. Um, I don't remember the first time I watched it. It had to have been sometime in high school, but it stuck with me ever since. I for sure saw this before Boogie Nights. Um, I think if I had seen Boogie Nights first, maybe it wouldn't have as much of an effect, because I don't think Boogie Nights uh is as personal or as powerful as this, or emotionally potent. But this, one I mean, it's it's a rough watch. I mean, it, it, it's long. I mean, I think that's the first thing you kind of uh, notice about it. But um, also, I think w- one of the the most poignant things about it, or the most uh, fascinating things about it, is Tom Cruise's performance, and that kind of sticks out of you. And like, yeah. if you're if you've been familiar with Tom Cruise all of your life. This is, this, this is, this will make your jaw drop. Like, I don't think he's done anything like very similar to this since maybe uh, like Tropic Thunder.
2: Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. Lex Grossman.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. So PTA is like hands down one of the greatest living directors today. And um, I, I think it's like kind of hard to understand why this movie is very effective. Uh, there's something very visceral, like we've talked about before. It definitely a gut punch movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's why I picked it. And um, I mean, obviously it's another, it's another bummer. But there's something like very electric about it, something that's very alive. like it, it's it's rambling. and um some of it kind of doesn't make sense, but it all makes sense in the end, you know? like yeah. emotionally, there's a payoff. I, I think you're not supposed to look at the separate pieces like too hard, you know? Because there's a lot of like, yeah, there's a lot of strangeness uh, happening. I, I I think a word that I saw thrown around is magical realism. and I brought this up in my last conversation about Ferris Bueller about magical realism. Um, I think this movie has a lot of magical realism happening, especially with like, um, like the frogs. Uh, I think, is that the biggest thing? There's some, there's some other unreal things in there.
2: Yeah. That that seems to be the most, you know, outlandishly, you know, magical thing that, that seems to happen.
1: And I think. If you watch this movie and you see the behind-the-scenes making of this, this movie feels like there, this, it was written by a 28-year-old on a lot of cocaine. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's, it's rough and it's messy, but it's very sweet and, and, and stirring and, and funny. Um, and, but if you look at all the, the behind-the-scenes footage of this, like – he PTA is just like he's on one man. He's working <laughs> out. he's like constantly sniffling, like touching his nose. Like I think he's like very clearly just like fucking coked out of his mind. And everyone's like, "All right, well, he, listen to the genius." <laughs> so this is
2: still um, you know kind of young in his career, right? His third movie between uh, Boogie Nights and, and Punch Drunk Love. It came, came out in uh, 1999,
1: 1999.
2: Yeah, so this
1: is a certain movie. He was 28 years old. Boogie Nights, I think, was a year or two before this. So I think mm-hmm. he was 26 when he wrote Boogie Nights, and he had a hard eight before that. And he's from L.A., right? Yeah, yeah, he's from the yeah. Valley, and that's why a lot of his movies take place in the Valley. Yeah,
2: Boogie Nights and... Uh and, and, and it's Magnolia. You know? And Magnolia, yeah. yeah I, my,
1: I, I think the idea is that Magnolia takes place all on Magnolia Boulevard. Mm. I don't think the movie addresses that directly. But if you look at the, at the street signs in the last scene when the frogs are falling, they're on Magnolia Boulevard. Mm. So um, you kind of get the idea that all these stories are somehow connected to this street in L.A. in the valley. Um, but this happened in, in 1999. And we've talked about 1999 before. 1999 is an interesting year for obvious reasons. We're about to hit 2000. You you got Y2K, you got 9-11. Big things about to happen. But um, you also have, um, I think it's imperative to talk about what was happening with masculinity in 1999. And I saw this documentary recently on HBO called Woodstock 99. And they go into like this deep dive uh, and they talk about this boiling heart of like aggressive young white men mixed with... This like feeling of ennui, not knowing what to do with yourself. And we, we talked about that, I think in our no country episode and they use, they use, uh, as examples, misogynistic cultural artifacts like girls gone wild or rap metal like limb biscuit. And you can see, you can see the anger being manifested in the music you can mm-hmm. see it being manifested in how um, all these kids gathered at this event and just kind of tore it down. They burned it down. It was just this anger brewing because they didn't know where else to put it, you know?
2: Mm. It's like uh, Donnie not knowing where to put his love.
1: Yeah, not knowing where to you put your anger. So this is like working in the background of this movie. And I don't think this movie is... I mean, there's anger in it, but I don't think so much about anger, but I think yeah. masculinity is something to keep in mind. Cause I think that's what this movie. Well, yeah, I think of Tom
2: Cruise's character, right?
1: Yeah. I think this movie is like very much about that. But also I think if you look at the, the like the spectrum, the range of PTA's movies, I um, mean, he's really interested in in masculinity. Mm-hmm. Um, he's really interested in like sexual dynamics of people. He's he's just like interested in why men act like horny little boys. <laughs> a lot of,
2: like, I think yeah, was, no, that's an interesting. That's a common thread, like a different aspect of of uh, masculinity. You'll see in there will be blood, right? Yeah. Um, and and a very different aspect of it in the master that the, like the latter part that you mentioned, like why are why are men horny little boys. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The master uh, is all
1: about that. Yeah. And I think uh, the title of the master, I mean, I think it's like, obviously it's referring to like, you know, a mentor or something, but I think it's also referring to like how they're controlled by like sex. Like if you, Mm. if you look at the cover of the master, it's like clearly shaped like a vagina. So the three movies that come to mind from 1999 and they're all touching on the same thing. And this is why I think, you know, there might be a common through line is Magnolia eyes, Wide shut and fight club. And I think all three of these movies, they're talking about masculinity. They're discussing it's being dealt with in, in certain ways in each, you know Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. that's what's happening in the background in this movie the context of like production is that PTA had made Boogie Nights two years before what we were just talking about and this movie was like that movie was so successful like everyone still talks about it I mean Tom Cruise is in Magnolia because he loved Boogie Nights so much mm. um, the studio New Line Cinema which released Ninja Turtles <laughs> throwback to that back. yeah um, they gave him carte blanche like he can do whatever the hell he wanted and he had Final Cut 2 and he just went nuts with this and initially his idea was that he was going to make a, like a really a small film. I think he just wanted to get something out real quick like because he can do whatever he wanted he was very excited about it. But I mean, this guy was coked out of his mind. He just like kept on going. Like, I think he had. I think the story is that he started with the Claudia character, and it just went from there. Mm. And, and he just kept on building and building. And uh, there's a behind the scenes documentary on YouTube that you can watch, and he's talking to Julianne Moore. And he, he's like explaining to her like how it was small, and she's kind of like laughing at him. She's like, "This is not a small project. Like, what happened?" Wow. Um, it's yeah, just, a, just it, it, snowballed. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it turned into this like three hour ensemble piece that just it's it's so it's so sprawling and it has like this it has a prologue that i'm not even sure goes with the rest of the movie you know what i mean (laughs) like he just like it's all in there it's all in there
2: yeah the the prologue is interesting if we want to jump into into that yeah let's talk about Um, the prologue
1: yeah like the the question i think
2: he's forcing us to ask is um you know is it coincidence or meaningful connect these strange experiences right? Yeah. These strange occurrences. Are they coincidence or they ma- yeah. meaningful connections? Yeah. Um, and, uh, you hear it in the incredulity of the, of the narrator, uh-huh. right? Like these aren't just things that happen, right? Yeah. Like, you know, um, but it, it comes back, uh, later, um, in the movie that, um, you know, and, and we'll, we'll get into, uh, all of the characters and, and references yes. and, and connections and all that. But, um, the movie is bookended near the end, where Stanley says, "This is a thing that happens." Yeah, right. This is a thing that happens, and this, the frogs are raining from the sky. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I, I think that that prologue is is meant to force you to ask that question: um, Is there meaning, or or is uh, it all just coincidence, or these are all just things that happen? And it, uh, um, you look at the structure of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, how you've got this, you know, mosaic of all of these characters and how interconnected they are. You've got similar themes running through each one, each one's storyline. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that structure, I, I think you can't help but uh, respond to that question uh, in a way of that, like, no, it is meaningful, like everything is connected, but then yeah. there is, you know, obviously the random randomness element of it. So like a bit of both, right? That is, there are connections and um, they... Um, are just coincidences.
1: Yeah. Do do you find that to be like an important part of this movie? That's the thing about it. When I watch the prologue, I don't know how important it is. I mean, yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. To go into the movie with that information, you know what I mean? Right. It's something you would have figured out regardless because I mean, the, so the stories are so closely connected and I, I think there, there maybe is like this, this general theme of connectedness, like it, it's a lot about connection and disconnection and how maybe sprawled out and, and disconnected people are, but inherently they just affect, affect each other. I mean, that's running in the background, but like, I feel like we didn't need the prologue.
2: And honestly, when I saw the prologue, I was expecting the movie to be something like... Um, like the butterfly effect type of thing where you would see things ripple out. And then at the end you would see how it was all connected to some seed, you know, like some some pebble that got thrown into the pond, you know, like, but it it didn't really, yeah, really turn out that way. Yeah.
1: I mean, I I think they're just like more vaguely. They're Mm -hmm. kind of just each in each other's webs a little bit in the periphery. I think like the central character here is Earl, who, who's kind of the producer, the head producer who was dying of cancer. Yeah. Um, He's kind of like what's kind of the the, the the middle, you know, like he's kind of the middle list or where everything branches out. Like you can mm. kind of just start there. But other than that, they're just kind of vaguely, vaguely connected, which, you know, you could have found out in a fun way without having that prologue. But, you know, the prologue is fun. <laughs> Yeah. I really love uh, the drawing on the screen <laughs> with the diagram of the, the the kid jumping.
2: You know what I thought about was John Madden. Yeah, like,
1: yeah, exactly. It's like, bam! <laughs> takes a football. <laughs> a yeah, so. I think that's like the the, the the idea you're supposed to get, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, it, it's a little ridiculous. It's funny. Um, not sure you needed it, but yeah, nonetheless, entertaining. But like I said, it, it does feel like a 28-year-old who's doing a lot of cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about... <laughs> I mean, obviously this is another bad dad movie. Um, and I don't mean, (laughs) yeah. What are you doing this on purpose? (laughs) No, I don't mean to, (laughs) but there's been so many bad dad movies or like bad dad, good dad movies. Um, well it makes you wonder is like,
2: are you doing this on purpose or is this just such a common trope
1: (laughs) that, you know, this is just widespread and, uh, um, Across films. Yeah. One, I think I think my daddy issues are showing, but also, I mean, this is a common theme. And like uh, obviously we're picking these movies because we respond to them in some mm-hmm. sort of way. But um, also, yeah, it turns out that this is like an extremely <laughs> common theme that runs through movies. But um as far as the show goes, I've been thinking about it and it, it does feel like a, a very limited scope of what we're doing. And I like, I'm working on it. I'm, I'm definitely we're going to, I, I want to branch out. I want to touch on other things. Another thing that I've been thinking about is um, like the limited scope of like American movies that we're doing English speaking. Um, I mean, all, I think all white directors so far just wanted to make a note that we're working on it. <laughs> but, you know, when, you, when you're when you dealing with something that's, you know, been so like, uh, uh, I mean, you know, white people make movies. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what are you going to do? <laughs> but, yeah. So I just want to put that as... As a caveat, that a uh, caveat. we are, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna do other things. So I wanted to talk about what this movie's about, and I think obviously it's about bad death. but it, it, I think more the broader theme is patriarchy and the negative consequences of toxic man- masculinity and patriarchy. And I think that's simple enough. Like, there's bad fathers, there's bad mentors, there's oblivious men who are just destroying everything around them, which is I, mean, I, I think that's similar to what we talked about when we talked about the real Tenenbaums. Mm. Um, it's just like a, a general obliviousness of a, of a, of a bad parental figure. And, um, I think that's something that PTA talks about a lot. And in a lot of his movies, there's always like a male character who says like, either, I don't know what, I don't know what I did or, or I didn't do anything, mm. you know? Yeah. And it's like the, a certain obliviousness and that's like tied to, to manhood. Mm. Um, and you know, what th- comes to mind is the, the scene from there will be blood
2: where, uh, he gets, uh, uh Daniel plain view to plain view to confess, right, what like what he did. Yeah. That's that's what it took to get him to uh like admit like what he did, what that he abandoned his boy, right? Yeah. So he's like smacking him across the face up in front of the
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um he kind of has to be like put in his place. Yeah. In a yeah. in a way. Like they need to be like manhandled. And you'll see that with Tom Cruise's character in Magnolia, where he just needs, like needs to be told what to do. De- like when he's like panting and she's like, okay, right. like calm right. down, you know yeah. Um. Yeah, it's like a little boy looking for guidance, like looking to be scolded. This is what often happens in PTA movies. Um, if you watch Phantom Thread, Daniel Day Lewis is just like a child who needs to be taken care of. Mm. I don't. You said you hadn't seen yeah, it. Yeah, I
2: hadn't seen it yet, so I,
1: but, I definitely want to see that. But basically, he's like he's like perfectionist. He's a, a clothing designer. Um, and he's just so uptaken in his job, but he meets this woman. They fall in love, and he ends up just like despising her because he's just an asshole. Mm. And. So he gets sick, and she nurses him back to health. And he ends up like he treats her warmly because of that. So she realizes that the only way that the relationship is going to last if she, if she makes him sick. So she starts poisoning him. Oh shit! <laughs> and nursing him back to health so their relationship works. Yeah. So you know, same idea. Mm. If you look at this movie, you can think you can see all the characters, and you can think of the characters in terms of like how they're affected by patriarchy or toxic masculinity I, I father figures are bad dads you have tom cruise tj mackey who is abandoned by his father who's earl the man who we're talking about at the center of this film uh, and forced to take care of his mother who died of cancer claudia who is i mean the cocaine addict <laughs> who i think we're supposed to infer was molested by her father and that's like a really like powerful powerful scene it's like it, it's like yeah. heartbreaking with- yeah
2: you see first you see her reaction to him in her apartment yeah like
1: the the Like,
2: get the the F out, get the F you know. Yeah. I don't know why I'm censoring myself. (laughs) Say the F word. (laughs) Uh, But, uh, yeah, and then it's revealed later that, you know, he probably molested her. Yeah, I think we're, yeah. Because the wife kind of, like, corners him and is like, making him um, respond to the, yeah. to the accusation and, and, and he doesn't, I think he doesn't come to... up
1: with a convincing. No, denial, no, no. You know? Like so. if, if he, if he hadn't, he would know, <laughs> I yeah. think, I think is the idea. Right. Um, well, yeah. You're, uh, he said, and he doesn't know what he did. I right? don't know what I did. Yeah. yeah. And, and the wife responds like, yes, you do. I mean, and I think that's the point that if he hadn't, he would know that for sure. Yeah. Um, and then there's Phil's character paid by Philip Seymour Hoffman, rest in mm-hmm. peace, who, who is kind of, just taking like getting shit on by Earl. He's like taking care of him, but getting shit on. Yeah. And I think there's like a, something about a masculine roles being played with because he's a male nurse. And I think,
2: right. That he, he, uh, and he's really the only compassionate character in the, in the film that I can think of. Right. Like yeah. Really the only one that's showing genuine compassion. Although, um, uh, John C. Riley's character, the cop, um, uh, what, what's his, uh, what's his character's name? Do you Jim. Remember? Jim. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The cop, the cop does near the end, uh, mm-hmm. with, uh, William H Macy's character. Yeah. Um, which has a really good, uh, monologue, you know, like Jim's monologue over the, the sequence of, um, uh, jim and william h macy's character returning all of the money back into solomon's safe oh yeah <laughs> um where he's like you know sometimes people need to go to jail sometimes they need to just be forgiven you know and give you know <laughs> give them a little little slack but you know back to back to your point like well um philip seymour hoffman that is interesting that didn't think about that, that i mean that i think he that would be that he would be shit on by uh tom cruise's uh
1: dad's Character. Yeah, he's like kind yeah. of, kind of awful to him. Yeah, in a certain yeah. way, I mean, they do have like a really like warm relationship, but he, he's just kind of like cussing him out and stuff. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, uh, he does take care of him, and and I think. The fact that he's like a a male nurse, it it, it kind of makes you think about like uh, things that we attribute to like femininity, Mm. you know, like being a nurse or being caring, being compassionate. That sets up like a kind of a dichotomy there between like masculinity, femininity, what those roles are supposed to mean, the things we attribute to each. And then there's like Stanley, obviously, who... I mean, his dad. And I, I think Stanley and Donnie are basically the same character.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Donnie is just the future version of Stanley, right? That. Uh, yeah. Um the, the quiz kid.
1: Yeah. Uh, the, yeah. Yeah. Donnie is like a cautionary tale mm-hmm. in, in, a, in a sense like that. This is where this kid is headed, you know? Yeah and then jim the cop and i think this is a i think i think they all kind of they all slot into this patriarchy or father yeah but but i think symbolism jim like follows this arc of over overcoming in a way he's Mm -hmm. the one actively struggling with it like i think he's a not aware of it but he's he's the guy that he completes an arc he like struggles with this he's not respected and he has a I mean, being a cop, you know, you you need to be masculine. You need to be you need to be commanding. Mm-hmm. Um, you need to have this presence. And like, you, uh, as they show him with his fellow officers, they don't respect him. Like, he he doesn't have like uh he doesn't command or, or demand respect. Yeah, as they're they're in
2: a uh, huddle in uh, Marcy's apartment. The yeah, one, the woman they arrest. Oh yeah, exactly. And he tries to get a word in, and they're just like, yeah. you know. And you can see this reaction. He's like, oh you know, he, he ventured out on a limb to try to offer something. Yeah. He was saying like she was being belligerent or something. Yeah. And, uh, they're, they kind of just like dismissed him and you can see it on his face. And he's like, Oh, I shouldn't have.
1: But he's also like a warm dude looking for love. Uh, And I think that's the thing that, um, he can't he can't receive that unless he he deals with like his need to be masculine and I think um and and, and like this very phallic representation he loses his gun yeah his manhood like yeah. you know right um right. and so it's like his his quest. For his manhood, for his masculinity, and you know, to search for it, and I think, in the end, he finally admits that he he's a bad cop. Like he's like he, he tells mm. Claudia, she she admits these mistakes, and she goes, um, "Not that you know me, like, do you object to never seeing me again?" Because um, you know, she's just like down on herself. Yeah, you know? yeah. but it, it it turns out like he you know he's on he's not much of a cop either. And like, so I think that's him like letting this go of this idea that he needs to be any sort of masculine because obviously everywhere else in this movie, like masculinity isn't working out for many other, the characters.
2: He he really jumped at the chance to like make that kind of confession to Claudia. Yeah. Like he was, it seemed like he was just looking for that and and she was a catalyst
1: to like Get this off his chest. Yeah, I think he was desperate for some sort of catharsis to be like released from this.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, like John C. Riley's character, I, I really liked and um, how he does slot into that father symbol in some comical ways, like how he's on top of everybody for cussing. Yeah. He's like, yeah. Watch the language. (laughs) (laughs)
1: uh, And, and and with Claudia, he's telling her about her hearing, like we, you know, in at the top of the show, how we play the clip. Yeah. He's like, you know, turn it down. You're going to hurt you. Seriously. You're going to mess up your hearing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But I think if we're, if we're considering this whole movie in terms of like patriarchy, Masculinity. I think the overarching patriarchal figure is God, because I think there mm-hmm. is there's an implied presence of God in this film.
2: Yeah, 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 definitely. Do you and want to talk about that? Yeah, we we should dig into eight um, two. Yeah, um, it, it's a reference to Exodus eight two. The first time I noticed it was um, in the prologue when Sidney Behringer's at the he's standing at the edge of the building about to kill himself, by jumping off the, um, top of the building, there's a rope that's coiled into the shape of eight, mm-hmm. two, and it, that just looked way too deliberate to yeah. me. And, um, I didn't notice it again until, you know, I saw that that was significant. I was like, this is going to come up again. It has to. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I didn't notice it again until, uh, the game show scene, where there's somebody in the audience with an Exodus eight, two sign. Yeah. Okay. And then I started like looking it up. Yeah. Uh, and then the frog started falling. I was like, okay, all right, it's the frogs. But, <laughs> uh, but I just want to go back. Cause like, um, I don't think, uh, you know, you'll, a casual viewer will see one or two of these yeah. twos. Right. And they'll, they might see the Exodus eight, two sign. Um, And then you see the frogs falling from the sky and then it's, Oh, okay. And then you go back and you tie it all together. But I just want to go, go through like every one of these references to eight, two, just to, to highlight, um, I guess, to the listeners to like how many times it's peppered throughout the film before the frogs start falling. Yeah. Um, But uh, in the prologue, yeah. You know, the, the story of the criminals being hung. um, One of the prisoners has eight, two, on oh, his okay. chest. Uh, it's one of, you know, how, how he's identified as prisoner number eight, two, um, like in a mugshot or something. Uh, no, the sequence where they're about, he's about to get like, get Oh, okay. Out. Yeah. 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 He's got a sign on Greenberry Hill. That says yeah, okay. yeah. Greenberry Hill. Yeah. Um, the, uh, story about, uh, uh, the firefighter picking up, picking up the scuba diver, mm-hmm. um, eight twos on his airplane. Yeah. It's on the fuselage and it's also on the wing. Um, the, uh, blackjack dealer the the scuba diver he deals that firefighter an eight yeah first and then he's like uh you know give me a king or something but or an ace he's yeah. like any nice um and he deals him a two so he deals deals him an eight and he deals him a two mm-hmm. uh the very next sequence and this is all just like bang 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 in the prologue yeah and uh the, i think the next sequence is um it's an awards dinner where they do tell the the story of sydney Beringer. um it's like at the little like the little sign that says when the dinner is being held, at, the dinner is being held at eight o'clock, eight or eight twenty. Oh, okay. Uh, at eight twenty, and um, Frank's uh, seduce and s- destroy infomercial. Uh huh. Um, the like two of the numbers in there are eight two. Uh huh. Um, this is very much like Lost. Yeah, 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 <laughs> very much. Yeah. Um, Jim, uh, Jim, the Jim, right? John C. Riley's character. Yeah. His uh, dating message. At the very end, he's like, hey, if this, if you're the person I'm looking for, leave a message at box eight, two. And, uh, um, and then, uh, the, the precip- precipitation chance of precipitation, mm-hmm. 80, 82%. 82%, all these references to Exodus eight, two. Yeah. Exodus eight, two is, um, Moses to the pharaoh of egypt saying you know if you don't let my people go god will smite your borders with frogs yeah like that you know we'll rain rain uh down on frogs and um i just kind of see that as obviously it's important like what what is the reference of uh
1: it seems like he was fixated on it yeah totally totally fixated on it and which is the product of a drugged out mind but also (laughs) i mean you can tell there's relevance within the story yeah as far as I mean, what do you think?
2: I mean, the, the closest, closest parallel I see is like the, the exploitation of children. Yeah. You know, I, I see, I see, I kind of see Stanley as a, uh, Moses type character. Uh-huh. Um, uh, he, he's a prophet in a sense in that, um, you know, and, and Stanley is, is the genius kid at, at the game show. Uh-huh. Um, he gets uh, free time to read. Yeah. And on his desk, um, in free time, he's reading about weather you know, a bunch of the books on, on his, on the desk are about weather. Yeah. When he goes to the TV station, um, his questions for the staff there are about the meteorological equipment. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, when it does start raining frogs, he's the only characters that that's not surprised by it. You know, like he, cause it's and, something that happens. Yeah. It's something that happens that, you know, he says it's the, that's the other end of the book end that, that, you know, this is just something that happens. Yeah. Something that happens. Um, and, uh, you know, you could even say that he's going to his father at the end of the movie, like Moses to the Pharaoh and, and telling him you need to be nicer to me. I love that. Yeah. You know, like he's going to his dad and say, Hey, you just, you need to be nicer.
1: Yeah. I see it in terms. I mean, I do see that. Yes. But also I see this need to be free from guilt for many of the characters, Mm. And this idea of yeah, yes, there are father figures getting people down, but it's also people dealing with guilt. And I, th- yeah. I think of, I mean, I, I think of Tom Cruise, uh, Frank's character. Mm. I mean, obviously he's dealing with a lot of shame and a lot of guilt. So much so that he has to create this whole story for himself to hide from it. Um, you know, Claudia's character, Jim, with a lot of shame and a lot of guilt. John C. Riley Jim, he's dealing with a lot of shame about being a bad cop, about not being masculine enough. And, and I see it as these, these people need... I mean, they need to learn some sort of, like, self-love in a way. I think it's sort of signaled in the end when Earl dies. There's some sort of catharsis for everybody where everyone's, like, kind of let go in a way. Where where this wheel that's holding everyone together, which I think is, like, a, a web of, like, shame and guilt, just kind of like falls apart because, like, the, the middle falls apart. You know what I mean?
2: Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I think, um, I think the frogs can be treated more broadly than that specific you know, children just being like, "Hey, let my people go." Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I think you're right. Like, I think broadly, all of the characters do have some kind of resolution or catharsis at or after the frogs. Let's talk about Donnie. Yeah, Donnie. Um, As one of my favorite scenes with Donnie is him begging his uh, boss you know, <laughs> not to fire him. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Let's listen to
0: that. Solomon, please, please, I am so fucked here. If you do this. This is the worst timing! The worst timing I could ever imagine. I need to keep working. I I have so many deaths, so many things. I have I have I have I have my surgery. My oral surgery coming. What surgery? Oral surgery! Corrective teeth surgery. What is that? braces. Braces? Yes. You don't braces? Yes, I do. These are fine. These are straight. I need surgery. I need corrective oral surgery. Donny, you got struck by lighting that time in Tahoe you on a vacation. I don't think braces is a good idea. Wait, Solomon, just that, let me ask you once. Please, please don't do this. How are you paying for the braces, Donny? I don't know. Oh, this is incredible. How much are braces anyway? it's uh I, it doesn't matter It's like $5,000 i've seen it i know oh, now you're pissing me off though this is fucking incredible this is fucking stupid
2: man i love it i i laugh every time i hear <laughs> uh the boss's sidekick, like Donnie, you got struck by lightning that one time in vacation in Tahoe. Brace is not a good idea. Yeah,
1: yeah. I love that detail written in. I don't understand yeah. it, like that he got hit by lightning. I don't know if it's to suggest that he's just like an unlucky person. Or yeah. Something.
2: But uh, the relationship, like I, 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 see so much of the theme we're talking about here about like, uh, yeah, bad fathers and like the relationship here between the boss and Donnie is, is sad, but also really funny. Uh-huh. And like Solomon, um, he, he looks like an exasperated dad dealing with a rebellious teenager. Yeah. Yeah, like the, the teenager is like, no, I need braces. like and, and, um, his teeth are straight. You know,
1: like. <laughs> I love how he refers to it as oral surgery, like, right? like braces are surgery,
2: street. but it's a great display of Donnie as a character, his, his problems. Um, you can, it's, it's kind of a subtle detail, but you can see that he dyes his hair black, yeah, dark, you know, yeah. you can see his, his gray or roots coming through. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, him just wanted to capture the. or or live the childhood that he didn't have.
1: Yeah. He's sort of in a state of arrested development. Yeah. Yeah. He kind of can't deal with, I mean, I I guess being a not famous adult. Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I used to be a
1: genius. (laughs) Um, but yeah, is he,
2: is he your favorite character in this? I think so. Yeah. And, and I think, um, he's my favorite, uh, William H. Macy's my favorite performance in this too. I know Tom Cruise gets a lot of props deservedly. Yeah. Um,
1: he really does.
2: But, uh, William H. Macy's amazing in that, <laughs> especially, um, that, uh, bar room outburst where he professes his love for, for Brad. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's really great. Um, you know, because there's a, the guy at the bar who's like flashing
1: the money. Yeah. Like really taunting him. Yeah. Yeah. And I love their exchanges too. (laughs) (laughs) But Uh, I feel like I've met that guy at a bar who would just like wouldn't shut up. Like I understood, (laughs) I understood like the frustration with this guy, like shut up. Like you're drunk. Like this, this bartender has no idea who you are. Yeah, and he'd have, like, one shot of tequila or something.
2: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's just at the bar, like, hungover. And he's like, oh. Yeah, I, I liked uh, I liked the banter between those two. It was funny. And uh, uh, what what is uh, what does he say? It's, it's dangerous to mistake children for angels.
1: Yeah, that's and what the then, older guy tells him. Yeah,
2: that's what the older guy tells him. And then he goes on this, uh, Macy goes on this rant, uh, professes his love for Brad, which, by the way, I love that, brad has braces i mean it's obvious right the first time you see brad is uh yeah there's like a close-up shot
1: and then it it all comes together like what this guy is doing it all meshes yeah gears are
2: meshing so yeah macy goes on this rant and then as he's leaving to go to the bathroom he's like and it's not a mistake to mistake children with angels what do you get from that i get that it's I don't know. I, I just, I kind of tie it to that uh, child as Moses thing. Let, like let my people go. There's a, there's a, there's a thread of oppression, you know? Like, yeah. I think there's, um, I think that's represented that way in multiple ways in,
1: the, in this movie. Moving on. There's a scene that I think we both identified as being kind of significant and important. And I don't think at any other time viewing this, like I would have picked it out, but it's the kid, the kids like rap about yeah. clues. Let's yeah. listen to it.
3: With the double-ass mini-kiss I bestow With my riff and my ferber-chit me though Think fast, catch me yo cause I throw what I know with the resonance For your trouble-ass feeding in the wind yourself off of the back of the shelf Jackass, crackers, body-stackers, thick two niggas, oh, master-pin-youches oh, hold, hold it,
0: homeboy, I don't need to hear that word
3: Living to get older, with a chip on your shoulder Except, you think you got a grip, cause your hip got a holster Ain't no confessor, so Buster, you better just shut the fuck up. Try to listen and oh, learn. Oh,
0: oh, oh, cut it, Coolio. I've had enough with the mouth and the language.
3: I'm almost done.
0: Finish it up without the lip.
3: Check that eagle. Come off it. I'm the prophet, the professor. I'ma teach you about the worm. Who eventually turned to catch wreck with the neck of a long-time oppressor. And he's running from the devil, but the debt is always gaining. And if he's worth being hurt, he's worth bringing pain in. When the sunshine don't work, the good Lord be in the rain And that shit will, will help you solve the case.
0: Okay, whatever that meant. sure it's real helpful, Ice-T. Did uh, you listen to me? I was listening to you.
3: I told you who did it, and you're not even listening to me.
0: I'm through playing games. Be cool, stay in school, okay? Mm-hmm
1: out of the street now my first question is i was wondering did did pta write that <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i was like i wonder if he wrote this if this kid made it up or i don't know i was wondering about like where that came from but you have some points about this scene and i have a few more points that i want to jump into but let's go over yours first
2: sure um yeah the the kid is uh like stanley he's a prophet in this um and that you know i think we can you know, just tally that up on the scoreboard as another instance of this, of this theme. Yeah. Our, our friend Juan actually told me the other day that, uh, there was, there was more to the worms character yeah. in this, there in, is. in a, in another cut of the movie. Yeah. Right, it was a whole, a whole, whole subplot. Yeah. Yeah. That, uh, and I, and I suspect that the kid, um, actually kind of folds more into this like child exploitation theme, like e- even more, you know, like if we were to see more of that plot. Uh huh. Um, but, uh, another, another point, uh, there's another Exodus eight, two reference in there. Um, not, not directly referencing the numbers, but you know, the, the kid says when the sunshine don't work, the good Lord brings the rain in. Um, it's another Exodus reference. And again, John C. Riley, you know, not listening to the kid kind of comically, like assuming that role of the paternalistic figures, like, Hey, watch your mouth. <laughs> um, also I think he calls them like three different rappers yeah he calls them coolio and and
1: yeah yeah, another really good scene there's a scene with a kid the kid's name is dixon i don't know if they ever say it in the movie but when the trailer for this movie came out he was like a prominent part of the trailer Mm. there's another scene i don't know if you caught this but there's a scene where he's like sitting watching tv in the living room with a bunch of other kids i don't i didn't know what to make of that did you have any thoughts about it
2: that's uh the worm coming in right I think that's the worm. Yeah. He's
1: coming in and he's like
2: grabbing him. And the worm, in his, the worm is his dad, right?
1: Yeah. So, well, okay. we've, yeah. Cause I, I, yeah. If you read the deleted, I don't know if it was ever filmed, but if you read like the deleted parts of the script that contain the worm, the, you find out that the worm is his dad, but also the worm is Marcy's son. Mm. So the kid we see rapping is Marcy's, Marcy's grand- grandson. Yeah. Mm. Um, but his name's Dixon. I don't know if we ever get that in the movie. What this made me think of, I wanted to talk about this idea about the placement of black faces in this film um just black characters there's three of them and i think we can consider the work of bell hooks which is a scholar that you might hear about if you're like in a gender studies course or something um but bell hooks talks about she theorizes like the placement of like black faces female faces in pop culture media and she asks important questions about the placement and where we see a black face, where we see a woman's face. Like one of her big questions is about using James Earl Jones's voice in star Wars. Like why is it the black voice that's supposed to represent like, you know, this encapsulation of like evil or villainy and then, you know, or, or the way that we look at black artists and why we look at them in different ways. Um, Another thing is like, she talks about Spike Lee and how Spike Lee has always been considered a failure, even when he was just having a really illustrious career mm. and like the different ways that we, you know, we view white and black artists. And she encourages people to understand that when we're watching a movie, when we're watching TV, when, when we're looking at things that, you know, are exposed to, to many people and, and she understands like the power of pop culture. And she'll say over and over again, is that like, pop culture is pedagogy for many people. Like this is where people are getting all their information. This is where they're learning. And there's so much money behind these images that we see that you have to understand that these are all very intentional. Like, you know, if you, if you see a black face on screen, there's politics behind that and the placement of it and the character that they're playing. And I, I think it's, I bring this up now in this movie with this movie, because I mean, this is considered like a, you know, a masterpiece by many uh, interesting movie, but I, you know the just like the placement of the black characters in this movie or it's very interesting. Mm-hmm. I mean I, I think PTA is probably like using this to like discuss the the, the deterioration of white patriarchy as you can see uh, in, in in the the deterioration of Earl who is like the man, like, you know, sort of like the, the God presence right. <laughs> aside from God in the film. But I think it's like also an odd point to make in a movie full of white people. <laughs> um, uh,
2: yeah. And it's an interesting point about Earl too. Cause he's from a totally different era. Yeah. Like he's especially, um, how, how visually they show the, like the old, um, reruns of his show, uh-huh. you know, like him, him when he was a young man, like black and white. Yeah. Black and white game show. He's like a totally, it's a totally different era. Yeah,
1: definitely. I mean, so there, I I bring this up because I, I I feel like there's shades of this. No, no pun intended, but I feel like there's like shades of this in this movie uh, uh, about like, you know, PTA addressing this, um, especially with, uh, in the the kids rap, he brings up like, uh, the term longtime oppressor and he talks about like, uh, police having guns and, um, he talks about stroking the trigger. So obviously like, you know, the, the phallic like, imagery of that gun, but also just the fact that, you know, authority and patriarchy go hand in hand. Um, it's the power of the oppressor.
2: Mm. Do you, uh, let me ask you, do, do you, uh, read any significance in, in Tom Cruise character and the interviewer?
1: Yes, so that's a, another relationship I was looking at. I, I wonder why specifically like, it's a black woman, you know? Yeah. And I think it's because it's like this power struggle happening, and he's intimidated and uh, like aggressive. Let's listen to that.
3: The Battle of the Bush is being fought and won by Team Mackey.
0: <laughs> we're going to start rolling now.
3: What? Well, I thought we were rolling. Come on, go, go, go. Whenever I am firing pearls at you here. Listen, I want you to know that I am not succeeding in the bush because I'm Frank T.J. Mackie. You think about this. I mean, there are women who uh, want to destroy me.
0: I find that hard to believe.
2: Yeah, and when when it gets subverted, he uh, flips out, right? When she gets the upper hand.
1: Yeah, yeah, he does. Um, He's like he he tells her this isn't a safe place for you you know right yeah when she walks into that room full of like i mean it's it's men but also it's a bunch of white men <laughs> like, um and then like he's like he's like flexing in front of her like his bulge is like right there in front of her face he's like trying to be very intimidating he's got, like five socks stuffed in there yeah exactly exactly <laughs> it's like very disfigured <laughs> um but i mean like I, I just wonder about that like the what's going on with these faces you know i mean we have marcy which is like I mean, almost like a character caricature, you know, mm-hmm. like like this black woman. Um, and then we have this whole story that was uh, omitted about the worm yeah. and Dixon. And um, in, in the omitted story, the worm and Dixon are going to rob Stanley at a coffee shop for his money mm-hmm. because Stanley just wants to help him. You know, like Stanley's like, oh, I have money. Cause the worm is all fucked up. Like the worm killed his dad and that's who's in the closet at Marcy's place. Oh, so yeah, he like, he's, he like hits him in the neck with like an ashtray and kills him. And that's, yeah. and he like, Dixon says this in the rap, like, you know, hitting at the neck or something like that. He mentions, oh, like, was
2: he the longtime oppressor?
1: Y- yeah. So the yeah. longtime oppressor being the father, he's a white guy. Y- y- yeah. Like being the father, being like the, yeah, exactly. So there's like these undercurrents of what's happening with race, oppression, patriarchy. It's all mixed in, but it's like, PTA just kind of cut it out and he lets it like hang as a mystery in the air. But still you're left with like to wonder what do these black faces mean in this movie? It seems all very intentional. And the interviewer, her name is Guinevere and I, and, and, and Guinevere, I mean, what the name means is white magic or like, like, (laughs) like I'm just like, what is going on? Like, I, I don't have like a, a broader point to make, but I think it's something worth chewing on. I think it's something To pay attention to, I mean, it's kind of something I want to pay attention to more as we go through more films. I think it's something that cannot be ignored in this movie. Nice. I think, I think that's like the point I wanted to make about that. I just wanted people to chew on that for a little bit as you're watching this movie. Yeah. And just kind of think about it. I'm sure other people will come up with different things as they think about that. But there seems to be like an intentionality, but also no certain point being made. (laughs) Let's go to stray observation. The fun stuff. Um, one of my big ones, I mean, we already talked about this was the God factor. Um, cause like there is a presence of a God in this movie, which is like, I think it really interesting, really funny. Um, but I mean, we talked about it, we discussed it, but when, when you're talking about a Stanley saying like the, these things happen, it seems kind of, uh, dismissive. Like what, like that's odd. Like why would he say these things happen? Right. But right. I mean, I, these things do happen <laughs> like over history. It has rained frogs like in real life, but it's happened to me. I was in Bakersfield once. This was when I was 18. I think I was dating a girl in Bakersfield and we're out there in the middle of the night and it started raining frogs. Like they were small Good. frogs, but it was raining frogs and like, I had I must have seen the magnolia magnolia by that time because I I made the reference in my head I was like oh shit like <laughs> this is something that happens. this is a thing that happens <laughs> yeah. wow yeah so yeah it's a thing that I, happens I've,
2: I've read about it right like you can have like a storm like pick up uh, frogs from a um, pond or something and it rains on yeah the exactly
1: but yeah. I mean like like I guess they're like yeah. light enough where where like they can just what is it like yeah get picked up in like condensation. So I'm, I'm not
2: sure if you noticed this, but the uh, blackjack dealer is a scuba diver. Uh, another word for a scuba diver is a frogman and his, his suit is green. You know, and like <laughs> he, he gets dropped <laughs> from the airplane into a tree. Like, yeah. Uh, what connected it for me was I was, uh you know, I didn't even connect it when I was watching the movie, but I was scrolling through doing my homework for this and um, just kind of scrolling through the different shots. And I saw that scuba, like the guy, this, this guy in the scuba suit, Stuck in a tree. And I was like, that's so
1: intentional. Yeah. Yeah. Also that that guy is Patton Oswald. Yeah. 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 Um, which is funny. There's a few people in this because uh PTA was known for like hanging around LA at the time. So there's a lot of like Largo people. Largo's this club in LA that's a comedy club. So there's just, like, you know, the people have got appearances in this and um Paul F. Tompkins, who's an improv comedian, has a funny story about trying out for this movie. You should listen to it and look it up i I would not do it, do it justice, but basically it's about him going to a reading unprepared sitting next to Tom Cruise
2: <laughs> another uh kind of stray observation was julianne moore's character which yes uh, i I cannot figure out how she's how she slots into all this but i mean there, she's she's a very interesting
1: character <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, here.
0: No, no,
1: that no, no, that can't happen. Earl doesn't want him to have anything. Well,
0: that's what will happen. So
1: fucked up and over the top, I can hardly. Linda, stop.
0: Now you take a moment, you breathe, and one thing at a time. Shut the fuck up. You want me to help you, Linda? Shut the fuck up! Shut the fuck up! You sober up. Now you must really shut the fuck up now, please. Shut the fuck up, Linda. I have to go. Let me call you a car, Linda.
3: Shut the fuck up!
1: That's so good.
2: <laughs> uh, one of the one of the complaints about the movie that I see around and, and I agree with is like the melodrama. Like all of these characters are so dramatic yeah. about. And like one of the things that I don't quite buy is um, like uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's character, the hospice nurse, just being like devastated by this
1: thing happen. I mean, what do you mean? Like about I, the way or I about see- Earl Dine, You mean? Or
2: it's like, yeah, like it's his job. Like he sees people die every day. Like imagine if you had an emotional breakdown every day at work. Like, you know, like, I well, I, I think after
1: I've, but like, he's like invested. Like, he spent this, he spends the whole movie looking for.
2: Well, imagine how emotionally exhausting it must be to get invested with yeah. all of your patients and they die and then you have an emotional breakdown and then yeah. you go to the next one the next day.
1: Well, he's a character with heart <laughs> compared such. to everybody else in this movie. He's not as cold, Man. but maybe, maybe the, <laughs> there should be like a spin off where it's just him <laughs> devastated every time.
2: So I, I think that scene like is so soap opera y. Uh,
1: Which one? The shut the fuck up scene? Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, she's really I, going until, for it. She's she really going saying, for it. Shut
2: the fuck up. Yeah. Shut the fuck up. Shut the fuck up. It's like she's uh, all of the different like intonations in her voice is like she's saying different things with each one of those shut the fuck ups. Yeah, and the very one, yeah. the last one is her slamming the door. Shut the fuck up. It's
1: basically an exercise in acting. Like how yeah. many how many different things could I make you feel? It's like I am Groot, <laughs> but shut the fuck up. I love this performance. Like this is probably the the most overactive mm. performance of all time.
2: She's really good too. Like um, uh, when she's going to fill the prescriptions at the pharmacy. Yeah, and his first comment is like oh, there's a lot of stuff. She didn't say anything, but she, like, stared oh at Oh, my him. God, she yeah. She said so much with her eyes right Yeah.
1: There. Yeah. It's fucking intense. Okay, so you're saying she doesn't have a place in this movie, right? Yeah. Like, it I've, doesn't really make sense to you as a character.
2: Yeah, with my kind of analysis I gave with, like, the, the kids and and um, father figures. Yeah. And oppression and, and things like that. I yeah, don't for sure. I don't see... Well, not not in that in reading, dogs. but
1: yeah. in any reading of this movie, do you think she has a place in it? Like, did, or did, did it seem like so out of place? Like, I don't know. I, I, I have an idea. Go for it. <laughs> so I was thinking about this when you said that. And I was like, yeah, I mean, it doesn't make sense. I do love her performance. It's big and it's funny mm-hmm. uh, in a sad way. But um, I think that this character needs to be in this. Otherwise, the only significant female character would be Claudia. And she's like pretty much saved by a man. Mm. You know what I mean? And I think, I think that that character would be more open to criticism. If you don't have Julianne Moore's character being sort of this more dynamic character, who's not all one thing. Like she's not a victim. Um, She's, kind of awful in in certain ways you know
2: well and the the big thing with her character is that you know her husband's on his deathbed and she clearly married him for money but yeah it's now that she decides or she realizes that she actually does love him yeah right and and she's torn by that and and uh that scene that we played is her going to her lawyer saying Uh uh-huh I don't want the money. It would be wrong for me to take the money because I only married him for the money. And, but I actually do love him now and I, I don't deserve the money. Yeah. Basically. Right.
1: Sucked other men's. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Adultery is not, a crime. but,
1: Yeah. I mean, I think like she's like the balance between this. Like, Mm I mean, it's like, okay, it's not only men. We're all suffering. But also yet again, she's another character that needs to be free from the own guilt that she feels like, you know, set my people free. She's also another character that needs to be set free. You know, Um, does she die at the end? I don't remember.
2: No, she, uh, uh, Tom Cruise gets a call from the hospital because uh, oh, yes. she, she uh, takes a bunch of drugs in the car and and Dixon finds her yeah. in the car. And I think uh, Dixon calls the cops or the ambulance or something.
1: Yeah, so yeah, interesting point is uh, that deleted, the, the deleted scene that was supposed to be Dixon and the Worm pretty much takes place around that scene. That car is like mm. parked behind this restaurant where they were supposed to rob Stanley. Oh, I see. Yeah, so yeah. that's kind of the place where that scene would have been
2: yeah okay. and and with all of the other characters I, I do I guess um, I wonder if uh, uh, Julianne Moore's character does get some kind of resolution I mean other, other than may, perhaps Tom Cruise and her connect over the the loss of, of
1: Earl yeah there's yeah. that and she's like yeah. set free from being in a relationship with this man which right <laughs> she might appreciate at some point <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, um, yeah I think that's all we wanted to talk about do you have last thoughts um,
2: do oh, you, I wanted do you- to comment on the song? Which one montage where all of the characters is a montage. of Oh
1: yeah. That's another aspect that I was talking about when I was talking about magical realism. Mm. Like they're somehow all singing the same song. I hated it. Did you? I hated it. Oh my God. I I loved it. It was like the pinnacle of cringe for me. Really?
2: Yeah. It was like my, my (laughs) eyes almost rolled out of my skull. (laughs) I guess.
1: I guess they're all singing the same song. <laughs> Come on, even like Earl singing it, right? Like, in oh bed. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I think I, I, I mean, I accept it. I say yes because I, I do love the song. Yeah, and and like all of Amy, Amy Mann is the one who wrote all these songs, and I think probably inspired a lot of the story through her music, mm. which is
2: pretty cool. Okay, I didn't know that. I have to...
1: Yeah, yeah. I think I think as he was writing this, he was like listening to her songs. And I think she wrote some of the songs for the movie as well. Um, but those are the songs that you hear playing throughout the movie. You know, wise of and Save Me and stuff like that. Yeah, I don't know. I like it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what is happening? This is stupid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so did you like this movie? I liked it. Cool. Yeah, I liked it. Good. But I mean, I... I had some, yeah, just nitpicking. Like I did think there was, uh, it was a little bit over the top with the melodrama. Yeah, and, uh, and that song montage was, like, <laughs> oh my god, really? No, <laughs> no it was good. I really liked it. Especially, um, uh, yeah, I love, I loved the acting. I loved the, uh, um, that you could kind of dive deep on on some of these connections and, and.
1: Uh, I think there's a lot yeah. to take apart, and I think it's in a way very. uh, shapeless in a way where you could kind of take what you want out of it. Mm. Um, it's just like it's some of it feels like it's like barely held together, you know? Um, and in certain ways, I did feel like a very solid film. It feels like a confident film, but also when you look at the the structure of it, 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 it's, it just seems like kind of janky in in some sense. Yeah. Um,
2: And another, uh, kind of, you know, a little throwaway observation, but I, I was reading a bit and, uh, um, the, the word mosaic comes to mind. Yeah. You know, like mosaic is also a word that you can use to describe something that like refers to Moses in the Bible. Mm. And it's like, a, I don't know if it's meaningful. I don't know if that's purposeful or intentional.
1: Is that, is that the, like where the word comes from?
2: I don't think it's, I don't think it comes from that. I think it's a, a synonym or a, what do you, I don't know what the term is for two words that I think it's synonym. No, it's not synonym homonym homonym. Yeah. Oh, that's a the homonym. Same? Okay. And they're spelled the same, but they're two two distinct meanings (laughs) is what what I'm saying. There's a mosaic, which is, you know, a picture that's, you know, made up of many parts, which I think this movie is. Yeah. Um, And then there's mosaic, which is just something that refers to Moses in the Bible. And I think that's like, I think they're two distinct
1: definitions. Mm, Yeah.
2: But uh, I just thought it was interesting and I wonder if it's intentional.
1: Do you understand the references to like the flower magnolia, no, I don't. Neither do I.
2: Me neither. I mean, yeah. So like, well, was it? All, it all just took it took place on Magnolia Avenue, Magnolia Boulevard. Boulevard, um, yeah.
1: But I mean, but there there there's like pictures of flower flower the magnolia and yeah, almost in every scene. Mm-hmm. Like if you look closely, um, there's always like a, a like maybe a frame picture of a magnolia. Like when the guy blows his head off after. Oh, yeah, a poker game. Like yeah. it's uh, his platters, his brains on a picture of Magnolia and in their interview scene with uh, Guinevere and Frank. There's a Magnolia framed in the background. Yeah. What I was reading, and I don't know if this is true on the internet, is that there's a Magnolia in every scene. Mm. Um, I didn't catch that, but I wasn't looking very hard.
2: <laughs> yeah, I wasn't. I, w- I didn't catch that. I'd have to go back and
1: look. And I think generally the idea is that people are connected as like petals on them a flower. I I read something. It seemed like kind of like a stretch about like, uh, I don't know something about like the healing qualities of like what magnolias were used for or something like Mm. that. But it it seemed like kind of like a stretch. Mm. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if there's like a really like a direct correlation aside being from like these people, are all connected in like this, you know, yeah. Tapestry, a mosaic. Yeah. Um, I think Magnolia just happens to be the name of the street that this all takes place. I mean,
2: but you can, you can kind of apply it that way, right? That, that's, yeah, for know, sure. Like that all of these characters are petals on a, on a flower.
1: I'm sure there's like a dozen other ways to, 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 to approach this movie. Um, but yeah, that's it. That's our conversation. Feel good all about right. that. Yeah, that's good. Awesome. We'll see you next time. And that was our talk about Magnolia. I hope you enjoyed that. We got real critical thinking on that one. Let us know your thoughts. We'd love to hear it. Once again, this is CR Gonzalez. The other voice you heard on today's show is Patrick Kelly. Next week, we're doing Speed Racer, the 2008 Wachowski Sisters film. We did it with our friend Josh Calixto from Bad End Podcast. That's B-A-D-E-N-D. You can listen to that podcast on Apple, on Spotify, and everywhere else. I suggest you listen to that podcast. He was an inspiration for this show. I love Josh, and I'm glad to have him. It was a great talk. Subscribe and rate us wherever you listen. You can follow us at Instagram at, at @filmslobbery That's F-I-L-M-S-L-O-B-B-E-R-Y. The music you're listening to now is written and recorded by Randy Flores. We love you, Randy. You should love Randy, too. Sit back and listen to his music. We'll see you next time.